back again, everybody, to another episode of What's Important Now, the podcast from the United States Border Patrol Academy. We like to talk about things that are important to the men and women of the United States Border Patrol, their family, but also to the men, uh, to the folks that we serve, the American people, a little bit of education about who we are and what we do. And today we have a very special guest. We have Deputy Chief Patrol Agent William Maddox of the Swanton Sector up in Swanton, Vermont. Chief, thanks for being here. Well, thanks, Chief Owens. I appreciate the opportunity to come here and visit the Academy, spend some time with uh, with you and a few other folks that I've known throughout my career and uh, meet some new folks and uh, see what you guys have got going on. You've got a lot of things that have been proved uh, dramatically since I went to the Academy in 97, and it's great to see some of those improvements being put into play with, uh, with the folks coming to the Academy today. Now, you and I were talking earlier, and we... About 20 years since we uh, since we first crossed paths. Is that, is that right? Oh, absolutely. It was uh, just post 9/11 when uh, when they started up Borstar as a national team. I went through that Borstar Academy in my first um, uh, assignment with Borstar was to El Centro Sector, that's where right. you happened to be a supervisor out there, and uh, that's where we first met. I think it was I think it was the summer of 2002. Seems like yesterday, didn't? Oh, absolutely. It goes by quick. Yeah. So you were you were class 359. You came in in December of 1997. I always ask this to everybody. Uh, do you remember your class chant? I sure do. Let's hear it. 359. Any task, any time. Any task, any time. So 20 years ago, just on demand, you can you can call it up like that. Actually, it's more than 20 years. It's about uh, 23 years. My math serves. Yeah. 23 years you've been in this. Absolutely. Still keep in touch with your classmates. Some of them I see. Uh, I see some of them still. I still work with some of my classmates. Uh, many of them have retired or moved on to different agencies and whatnot, but uh, I still see some of them that are in the service as well as some that have retired. Well, let me give everybody a little rundown of, of your career and what you've done here in this organization because it's, it's pretty impressive. It says you started off in at the Mercedes station at the McAllen sector. Now, for those that don't know, that today is known as the Weslaco station, and it's the Rio Grande Valley sector. So both the station and the sector have changed names, but that's that's where you started off. He was a field training officer. He was a member of the Horse Patrol Unit. I want to talk about that in a little bit. And he was also a certified vessel commander for our, uh, our maritime unit. He was uh, part of the special response team, and we'll talk about that in a second. That actually came along uh, at the sector level before everybody was considered to be a member of BORTAC. And then, as he said before, he, he joined the, uh, the BORSTAR team. That's the Border Patrol Search, Trauma, and Rescue Team. He was a supervisor in the Yuma Station. He went up to headquarters as an assistant chief in 2008. And he oversaw the entire fleet for the U.S. Border Patrol. Now, think about that, ladies and gentlemen. That's the Border Patrol is a mobile force. We do everything out on patrol, and it's uh, twenty thousand strong. So you can imagine the size of the fleet and what that requires—just the regular maintenance and and uh, changing those vehicles over on a regular basis. He did that for a number of years. He went to Holton Sector, near and dear to my heart. Spent some time as an assistant chief and at the different stations. Went back to headquarters as an associate chief with the strategic planning and analysis director at SPAD. We'll talk about that also. Spent some time with the Mission Readiness Operations Directorate as a deputy chief. He went to Swanton Sector in 2018 as the deputy chief where he still is. But more than that, he's actually been an acting chief at three different sectors on the northern border, the Swanton Sector, the Grand Forks Sector, and the Haver Sector. And before all that, as if this wasn't enough, prior to joining the Border Patrol, he served in the U.S. Army for four years as a member of the 325th Airborne Battalion Combat Team uh, for NATO's Southern European Task Force. So that's a mouthful. It's been a, it's, it's been a wild ride, I'm sure. Oh, as a humble man, Chief, you're making me a little embarrassed. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, so let's talk about some of these things, because I think a lot of these uh, might be of interest to the, uh, to the men and women that are out there that might want to do some of these things someday, and then also just for the, the public to hear kind of what that entails. Let's start off with the horse patrol. That's something that's kind of... It, it's a synonymous with the Border Patrol. It's something that whenever you see pictures of Border Patrol agents out there, it's not uncommon to see them out on horse patrol. Of course, that's how we started. Back in 1924, that was one of the things that a new uh, Border Patrol inspector at the time had to show up with their own horse and their own saddle, and they were given you know, hay to feed them, but they did everything out on patrol uh, by a horse. So you were a member of the Horse Patrol, which still exists today and is actually a very viable operational asset. It's not just a ceremonial thing. Talk a little bit about what the Horse Patrol does for the sectors. Well, sure. Um, I can speak specifically to McAllen sector or Rio Grande Valley sector now. Um, when we, we had not done Horse Patrol for a number of years, and we re-implemented the program. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to be uh, one of the folks that, that was there when it was re-stood up. 
Uh, so with the horse, when you're out, outside of a vehicle, you have a, you're, you're more in tune to what's going on around you, right? You can hear things, you can smell things, you can see things that you wouldn't hear or see or smell when you're in a vehicle. In addition to that, when you're working with the, with the horse, you be, become accustomed to the horse's body language, when their ears turn, when their heads turn, when they spook a little bit. Maybe they're seeing something or hearing something or smelling something that you don't. But when you begin to get in tune with, with how they react to um, something or someone hidden in the bushes, um, to find out that what's, what spooks them, what stands their hair up on end, might also stand your hair up on end. And they help you um, uh, to recognize that, that assumes threat. you have hair. Correct. Yeah. I used to have more hair than I do right now, although there is a little bit there. But uh, less and less, it's, it's turning gray, and it's this organization that, uh, that you know, has yeah. made that gray appear. It's not has anything to do with my age. Um, but also, so it was a great opportunity to, to ride the horses. Uh, I did that for, for over a year there, uh, riding by the, uh, by the Rio Grande River. And uh, when you realize what a horse can do and bring to a, a team, um, or bring to our organization uh, great benefits uh, to that, similar to, to the canines that, you know, an animal can key in on a lot of things that we don't as humans. Well, I was going to say, so the, it, it's really a partnership that you have with the animal that, that, you're, that you're out on patrol with, whether it be a canine or whether it be the horse. They're, they're out there on patrol right there with you, and you depend on them just like you would really any other kind of backup. Absolutely. So what does it take? If somebody wanted to join the horse patrol. And I know not every sector has a horse patrol, but there are a lot that do. So for young agents that are interested and they want to be a member of the horse patrol, what does that entail? What do they have to do to join? Well, of course, I did mine years ago. Um, and you don't necessarily have to have riding experience. Um, as with many of the uh, collateral duties in the United States Border Patrol, we can take somebody who doesn't have experience in a certain skill set, and we can train them up from zero experience to being experts and professionals in that field. And uh, sometimes those folks that know nothing about a program end up being the best because they're learning the skills from people that are subject matter experts and they don't have the bad skills that you, or the bad uh, practices that you might incorporate into your writing or whatever it is you're doing. Um, if you, you learn it from somebody who has bad habits, you might learn those bad habits. In the Border Patrol, we do away with bad habits and the folks that provide our training are subject matter experts and, and, it's uh, and they provide right? that training. Not everybody that puts in, they have to go through an evaluation process, and, and not everybody makes it all the way to the team. They have to demonstrate at least a proficiency or a propensity to learn the craft and actually meet an evaluation standard before they're actually accepted onto the horse patrol unit. Oh, absolutely. You have to um, uh, have the right temperament to work with animals, obviously, and uh, um, in some instances have that um, some level of experience as an agent before you can be incorporated into a specialty team like that because you want to learn your own skills first. So, But once you have the, the basic skills, you know, as an agent on the ground, uh, as with many of our collateral duties, ex you might expect to have a certain level of experience before you can get involved in some of those collateral duties. So I'm going to give you kind of a softball question. Why, why would we choose to send out the horse patrol in a given area as opposed to uh, a marked unit or an ATV? Well, there's a lot of instances where uh, a vehicle just cannot get to. Um, and I'll use an example in, in the Rio Grande Valley during muddy season. Very difficult when you get down by the river, down onto the levees, extremely slick. Um, with that river silt, when it gets wet, it becomes really sticky and slippery mud. There's, there's quite often that it's uh, impossible to drive a vehicle without getting it stuck, mired in that mud. Um, there might be some trails that uh, are not wide enough uh, to get into a specific area. Uh, any number of reasons why you couldn't take a vehicle that a, a horse could go. Uh, and they're again speaking specifically to, to uh, Rio Grande Valley sector where I rode on the horses. Uh, but I know other sectors where they, they use those to, to cross rugged terrain up into mountains and woods where it would not be conducive to take a vehicle because of the distances and the amount of gas and supplies that you would have to carry that you might not have to carry with a, with a horse. Also, when it comes to our partners, there's, there's ranch lands and there's areas that just you don't want to take a vehicle. You're trying to conserve the land. You're trying to uh, protect the environment. And in some instances, those horses help us do that. We can still go out there and patrol, but not tear up the lands while we're out there on patrol. And horses also afford us that opportunity, especially for some ranch owners. They may be willing to have the horses on there, but they don't want Tahoe's or ATVs out uh, 
screaming around on their on their property. Also a good operational benefit because it affords us the opportunity to patrol out there other than just being out on foot. Sure. We want to limit our footprint, you know, especially when we start working in some of these national parks and, and things of that nature where we're trying to keep the lands pristine as possible, but we also have to do our job to secure the border and secure the nation. Um, so wherever we can leave a minimal impact, uh, we like to do that. Absolutely. So did you have any experience with horses before you joined the horse patrol, or were you one of those that was a blank slate? No, I did have some horse experience uh, in my past before, and, and that was, uh, I think, one of the reasons why coming on and starting up the unit when we restarted it up in, in RGV, um, that gave me a, a leg up and to be one of those folks that was selected because of my experience. And you talk about their, their senses. They're actually, at night, better at seeing things and hearing things than, than we are. Sure. And so that helps us from an operation. So it really does provide a benefit to the sectors that have those horse patrols. Not some just for ceremony, and it's, it's not something that just uh, because it goes back in our culture. It, to this day, much like sign cutting, remains a viable part of our operational posture and how we go out there and achieve border security. Right. And it's great to have the, uh, the operational capabilities, but also to participate in something that's been in our organization since its inception. So we talk about uh, the, the advances in technology and the different tactics and the way that we do things, but some things just seem to endure. They just seem to persist. And there's there's two things that come to my mind when I think about the uh, the Border Patrol that just, I don't know that they'll ever go away. One of them is sign cutting, you know, the art of, of following sign or tracks or evidence through an environment to try and find where a person has gone. And then the Horse Patrol, they just, to this day, they, there's a use for them. A hundred years later, it's uh, despite the, the unmanned aerial aircraft we've got, the, uh, the technology and the sensors, the, uh, the infrastructure, still to this day, the Border Patrol depends on that as an asset. It's amazing. Sure. Boots on the ground. Nothing will replace boots on the ground. And then you, uh, you went from there, and you switched to another aspect of our operations that not many people think about when they think of the, the Border Patrol, and that's our maritime assets. That's the ones that actually patrol on the river. And we actually have uh, vessels, and not just anybody can, can jump on a boat and, uh, and take off and patrol. It's a very extensive selection and certification process that a person must go through to be what we call a vessel commander, crewman before that. You did that also in, in the Rio Grande Valley sector? Yes, I started that in the Rio Grande Valley sector. Uh, did a little bit up in Maine as well, up in Holton sector, and then uh, in Yuma sector as well when we started up the boat unit there. Um, so if a person... An agent decides this is something that they want to get into. They look at the, uh, you know, the the boats and they think that's something that looks interesting to me. What do they have to do to be a member of a sector's uh, you know, riverine patrol or, or maritime unit up on the northern border? I know up in, in Holton Sector, they're actually uh, uh, patrolling in blue water up in the in the bay, the, the Pasadoquati Bay, and and it's uh, it's rough seasons. Sometimes they've got the twenty seven foot safe boats, so it's not just a pleasure craft. They're out there with the with some serious uh, marine vessels and, and doing patrols out in, in, in the open water. What does it take for a person to be able to do that coming from the ranks of the Border Patrol? Well, just like anything, you don't have to necessarily have experience, but any experience helps. Any knowledge of the maritime environment is going to help in a situation. But it's not necessary. Again, we have professional subject matter experts and uh, that can train people that don't have any knowledge and get them to where they need to be operationally. Um, Obviously, uh, a swim test is involved and, and uh, specific training to get to the point where you're a certified vessel commander. Uh, we have the uh, Federal Law Enforcement Training Center ha- has a training, the Marine Law Enforcement Training Program, MLETP, we call it. Um, and that is a very rigorous uh, training program that um, is required for anybody who's going to be a vessel commander with the United States Border Patrol. How long is it and where? To be honest with you, I don't remember. I'm going to have to go off the cuff, and I think it was about five weeks. Okay. But uh, I, I can't uh, say for certain. I think St. Augustine uh, down by Florida is, is where the, uh, the current course is, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, that, that, that sounds right. So certainly several weeks uh, in duration before a person can actually uh, – and you have to have time as a crewman before you go to be a vessel commander, right? Right. So two different types of patrol that we're talking about. One is the Rio Grande patrolling the river, and the other is up on the northern border and in, in, in the Miami sector and others where there might be some, uh, uh, with the air and marine operations, uh, some, some blue water patrols. What does, what benefit, operational benefit does the riverine patrol do for a sector? 
Well, one when you once again when you're when you're down there on the water, whether you're you're up on a plane or whether you're drifting, you're going to get a, a visual uh, of of something that you're not going to be able to see from the banks or from the air. Uh, you're going to be able to see the banks on both sides. Uh, you're going to see see where people have crossed the mud, muddy trails going up and down uh, the banks, and those are difficult to see, especially in heavy vegetated areas. In the Rio Grande Valley, we have the uh, uh, the Cariso cane that, that grows up all over the all over the river. Very difficult to see where things are going on when you're driving close to the river. But if you're down in the river, you can see where where people or things are being ferried across and, and coming up onto the banks. So safe to say you can access certain areas that you probably wouldn't be able to get to from the banks because of that Cariso cane and some of the dense vegetation along the along the river. Right. Right. So when you're on patrol there one of the things, so there's some very stark images that have been put out there on video and, and camera, some of the rescues that take place. You're also in a location where you can save somebody. We lose people in the river, uh, trying to cross the river every single year. Uh, people drown. It's, it's, it's deceiving. It's, it's one of those, uh, it looks like it's calm, and if you can't swim very well, the, the currents of the river can drag you under. There have been numerous times where uh, members of our uh, uh, boat units have actually rescued people. There's one that's coming to mind that uh, somebody from one of the POE bridges videoed one of our agents actually bring somebody out doing CPR on them and they ultimately revive the individual. Those uh, those vessels and the men and women that do uh, those patrols are responsible for countless rescues, saving countless lives each and every year from those that are trying to cross into the country illegally. That doesn't get a lot of uh, notoriety, but it's but it's an important aspect, especially for those that get saved. Sure, and the ones that do get that notoriety. They're just one of many. Border Patrol agents save lives every day in the marine environment, in the desert environment, in the snow and mountainous environment. Um, it's uh, Our folks do incredible work, um, and they're unsung heroes, absolutely unsung heroes that don't get the credit that they deserve. Uh, we do a, a lot of work, obviously, with uh, um, the surge of immigration over the border, and that stuff gets a lot of news, but the part that doesn't get is the, the life-saving uh, that we do every single day. So both of these units that we've talked about, I, and when I talk about them, these images come to my mind. The one that I talked about right now with the uh, with one of our agents doing CPR on somebody that they rescued from the river. Back to the horse patrol, there's one from Laredo sector where, and I remember being there. We had a uh, a freak snowfall, uh, which is unusual for that for that part of the country. And so there were several people that were crossing through the desert that uh, they got stranded, stuck out there, and and very well could have died. You know freezing temperatures out in the snow, and the horse patrol, men and women of the horse patrol, actually rescued them. And the picture is the agents dismounted with the illegal aliens on the horse, and they're actually walking them out because they were they were so uh, uh, dehydrated and hypothermic. Those are the kinds of images that whenever I think of what these men and women do, they, they, they come to mind uh, readily because that's the kind of selfless acts that epitomize who the men and women are that wear this uniform. Those two units are great for those types of stories because they're out there each and every day doing operations, and so there's countless, countless stories like that where rescues take place, lives get saved because of their efforts. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And um, aside from the specialty units, uh, how many pictures have we seen just of, of agents carrying um, sick or injured purple people on their on their shoulders, or just you know firemen carry uh, out of over long distances? Uh, just incredible. Um, Entering into burning cars, uh, you know, super uh, superheroes in my book. When you mentioned the uh, the specialty units, and so I'm gonna that's a good segue because it's something else that you've done. You were a member of the special response team. Now, for those that don't know, now that every team at the sector and the national level are considered BORTAG, Border Patrol Tactical Unit, no, not many people remember that there was a time where the sector units were called special response team units. And, San Diego was the only different uh, sector. They were called REACT, the Regional Emergency and Crisis Team, but they were also on SRT. You joined the SRT team in the McAllen sector, now RGD, right? Correct. If I'm not mistaken, I was one of your cadre. Yes, you were. <laughs> <laughs> and so you did that for a number of years, and you also joined uh, the Border Patrol Search Trauma and Rescue Team. So Class 5? Class 4. Class 4, okay. Yes. And so you've done both. So I'm going to ask you a question that I get asked a lot, and, and See what you what you have to say about it. First off, let's compare SRT with Bortec. 
how would you describe the relationship that existed back then between the sector SRTs and the BORTAC team compared to what it is today? Well, I think given that they were, one, the, the BORTAC was a national level team and the SRTs were, were local level teams, a lot of the expertise uh, from BORTAC was lent to the SRT teams and they provided the training to, uh, to the SRT. Uh, the SRT was not called upon as much for national level incidences. They dealt mostly with local or regional level situations, whereas the BORTAC was uh, available um, more for the, for the national level issues or if something we were dealing with at a sector rose to that level of needing national level assets. Uh, the relationship was good from everything that I saw. Um, there again, with the uh, the SRT relying uh, on the, the board tackers as those with additional and a higher level of, of experience and training behind them, and then they pass that down to to the SRTs. Over time, those uh, those teams, of course, were, were melded together, and all of the uh, the local SRTs became local board tack teams, and everyone became nationally level, level certified. Um, what that did for us was make the training and experience more equitable all the way across so that we can increase our operational capabilities for the United States Border Patrol. And it, and looking at it from the other side, I was on the, the national team during that time with BORTAC, and it also standardized the training across the board so that everybody had the same type of training, the same type of standard. And it basically was a force multiplier, whether a sector needed additional assets, you knew that whatever sector the individual was coming from had the same type of training, the same type of standard, so they could they could provide that assistance. And then at the national level, if uh, we needed additional resources, which we often did, we could also rely on on the sectors for that same type of support. So in my mind, it was a really good move. It was, it was a smart thing to do. It just uh, it took some doing. And then finally, you got everybody that's, that's considered Vortec, and, and there's not two separate teams. It never made much sense, I think, to a lot of us. And then comes War Star. And the question that, uh, that I get asked often and that I'm asking you is, I get asked, which one's harder? And, and I'll tell you what I say after I hear your answer and then, and then compare the two. So let's hear what you have to say. Well, I think um, neither of the um, courses can be called easy or neither of the teams, being, being a member of either of the teams, can be called easy, right? Because there is a significant amount of uh, physical exertion that's involved in the training. There's a mental aspect of having to learn uh, learn and memorize a lot of uh, procedures. Um, so I would say there's a competition between the teams. There's a, a friendly animosity, if you will, um, be, because of the uh, um, the competitive nature just of, of folks that get involved in that kind of work. And, and Border Patrol agents, uh, period, we're, 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 uh, f- we're fiercely independent and we're competitive. Uh, we like to uh, outdo each other all the time because we're all um, we're all great at what we do, and we like to be the best at what we do, and, and we want to um, not only help everybody else to be better, but we also want to better ourselves. And I think there's a, um, a great level of, of competitive nature between the teams. So I, I can't say that uh, one team has it any easier. Different operational environments, often the, the same operational environment is, is um, between the teams, but with different mission sets, one being a, a tactical response and the other being that search and rescue. And both can be, be quite challenging and, and uh, the folks involved can be um, exposed to a lot of hazards, uh, job-related hazards um, that, uh, that are not unseen by a regular Border Patrol agent, but they're not as common as, as might be when you're involved in a special operations unit. So very close to, to the way I would describe it as well. What, what I tell people, and usually it's, it's when I'm talking to the trainees and, and at, before their graduation, we have a moment where the class can actually talk to, to me and the visiting uh, chief from the sector. And, and it's a non-attribution moment where they can just ask questions about what to expect and, and about things they could do in the future and whatever they want to talk about. And so inevitably, I do get that question a lot. And, and my answer is, I think it does a disservice to either team to try and compare the two. They are just completely different, different mission sets, different purposes. They are both extremely special in their own right, and, and the training is very rigorous, but it is apples and oranges. If you, it depends on what you want to do, the mission that you want to accomplish, as to what team that you would gravitate towards. And, and uh, you and I both had the, the privilege of, of trying them both out, and I'm proud to have been a member of both teams and, and the missions that they have for the organization as a whole are, are absolutely critical to this day. 
the uh, the Vortex selection course. Uh, that was one that uh, a lot of sleep deprivation. Uh, you don't always get to eat the food that you want. You don't always get to choose the MRE that you <laughs> you get to eat. Uh, you're out in the field a lot, and then uh, and the weather and the environment can be uh, very trying. There's a uh, on the Vortex side uh, the water portion. Be a strong swimmer and be able to uh, to exist in the in the water environment and, and the academic portion on the medical side and, and what you have to know for for land navigation and technical rescue. All of those things make you better as an agent, but you have to be a good agent first if you're going to be a good member of either one of those teams. And that's one of the things I always talk about to folks that are interested. Dedicate yourself to becoming the very best border patrol agent you can first and foremost, because those are the skills, that's the foundation that's going to make you a good member of either team. I know you probably see that exactly the same way because you had been in for several years before you went out to either one of those teams. This is true. And uh, back back when I went through for either of the teams, you had to, uh, I believe it was a three-year minimum mm-hmm. uh, in service that you had to have before you could even volunteer for the teams. I'm not sure what, what the uh, requirement is uh, nowadays. I think it's two now, but there still is that, 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 that requirement to try and at least know how to be a border patrol agent first. And then the one important thing to always remember, and you and I are, are testaments to that, is you do time on either team, but at the end of the day, you come back to this uniform and you are part of the U.S. Border Patrol first and foremost. First and foremost, above all, no matter what you do, you are a United States Border Patrol agent and you need to be able to do that job well. Sure. And I think one of the things that, uh, well, that, that grew us as an, an, an agency and brought those teams to, to be national level teams was, was 9-11 and our requirement to respond to uh, incidents of national significance. And, uh, and if you recall, it was, it was post 9-11 that we went national with, with Vortac and Borstar. Uh, and, and it was, uh, we have the changes that we have seen in our careers is just phenomenal. The growth of the organization, um, the quality of training and the, uh, the quality of product that we provide to the country to secure the borders and secure the nation is uh, is just absolutely incredible. And the caliber of people that we have doing it, um, I am I am very proud to have spent a career working amongst the folks that uh, that we get the, the privilege, as you say, uh, to work with. Well, and, and I remember so when 9/11 happened, I was actually going through the Vortec Basic. I went I went through Selection Course 15, and uh, we were actually out in the field. And at the time. There was a, an ODA, a, a Special Forces, U.S. Army Special Forces uh, detachment that was assigned to Vortec during that training evolution to, to help do the training. And they brought us out of the field. Now, we started that, uh, that course on the 1st of September in 2001, and they brought us out of the field to show us on TV what had happened. And you can imagine whenever they were, they were bringing us out of the field and they were telling us about it, we thought it was another mind game. We thought they were playing on us trying to get us stressed even more than we already were. And as we watch that, and you start to realize right then and there, your whole world is changing. And so too did the mission and the op tempo for both of those units, really. Because after that time, it we hit the ground running. It never stopped. And we were gone all the time. Everything uh, focused on you know, counterterrorism and, and making sure that we could keep the, the people of this country and, and our way of life safe. And I don't think we've looked back. The, the, not only did the, the scope of those teams change, but so did the mission of the Border Patrol. It, it was no longer singular focused. It was all about border security, national security, and doing everything we can to keep that from ever happening again. Right. And I think one of the first things we did was prep for securing the Olympics in February of 2002, which, you know, soon after 9-11. And that's when all of the teams, I think, for the first time ever, worked together on a national level incident of that scope. Uh, and so we had SRT, Star, and BORTAC all came together and worked together to uh, to work that security in that venue. And it was absolutely incredible. And, and you talk about putting putting that friendly animosity aside, and, and we all went out there together and did a, um, a phenomenal job of, of securing that uh, uh, those Olympics. And, so speaking and of great. friendly animosity, I forgot you were there at that, uh, that detail as well. So let's talk about what was your job? Talk about your, your experience there. I know we've talked about this before. What did you so, do? So I, when I got there, I got assigned as a team leader, and uh, I had a, a cadre of, of folks, and it was a combination of SRT, BORTAC, and BORSTAR on my team. And, uh, and we secured the, um, the, the snowboarding halfpipe mm-hmm. uh, venue uh, right there in um, it was Park City, Utah. 
And uh, so that's that's what we did. We we secured the the perimeter to make sure that there was no fence jumpers. Uh, kept an eye out for anybody that might uh, um, pose a threat. As you know, the Olympians from all over the world, uh, a lot of dignitaries uh, visiting from all over the world, and uh, it was very important to keep those folks. Uh, safe and how do we do that by keeping out unwanted folks that don't go through the uh the magnetometers and everything else to to go into that secure area so we we made sure that that perimeter was secure and uh again we did it did a great job what you don't know or you might not remember is i i was at that same area except i was doing midnights and so i was a little higher up the mountain right and you remember those uh those telephone booth style uh shacks that they had built for us to stand in and keep warm. Sure, with the little kerosene heaters. The little little, (laughs) little kerosene heater that maybe warmed it up to about 20 degrees inside there so you didn't just freeze. And uh, and then, of course, you had to make your way down the mountain when your shift was over and and get bussed back to your lodging. So And then start the very same thing the next day. We were working seven days a week. Tough work. And and as you said, we did a good job. I think we were uh, uh, deputized with the Marshal Service. We were supporting the Secret Service as as a national security event. But what an amazing experience. Did you ever think in your life when you joined the Border Patrol you'd be able to go to the Olympics and actually be there and see the venues and the athletes and, and all of that that went into that? Oh, absolutely not. That was uh, beyond my wildest thoughts. So, you know, joining the Border Patrol, I thought I was just going to be riding an ATV out in the, in, in the desert and, uh, you know, looking for drug smugglers and, and illegal aliens. And it uh, turns out that uh, the things that I've done over the course of my career um, – have only been limited by um, by time. There's so many things to do and so many things to see. Just, you know, a career is only so long, and uh, I wish I could go back and start it all over again. Did you get to see anybody famous when you were there? Um, so an interesting story um, at the Olympics. I did get to meet some a, a lot of the, um, uh, the competitors, the Olympians, but when I went, there was three of us assigned to the SRT from the Cowan sector that were all from the same hometown in Connecticut. And uh, we all ended up on SRT and McAllen sector, and we all went to, to the Olympics together. And while we were there in the snowboarding venue, there was a, a local boy from, from Connecticut that was also from the same hometown that was one of the competitors. And so we were securing the venue where one of our hometown guys was competing. So what, it was a, what a small world. Yeah. And uh, so I got to uh, meet him right there on the slope, actually on, on, the, uh, on the lift. I met with uh, one of the snowboarders who was riding up with me on the lift when I was going up to my little hut. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, hey, do you know this guy? And I said, yeah, that's him right there. I said, geez, he's, he lived in my neighborhood. You know, he's younger than me. But So uh, when he got off the uh, the lift and I went, hey, you know, and so we, we linked up and had a few minutes and, you know, told him good luck. And, and so it was a good times, a small world. So I didn't I, I didn't have that experience. I'd say, you know, the Secret Service, you know, when they did have passes for some of the events, you know, they would tend to go themselves, and every once in a while they would uh, give us some uh, some tickets to go in if we wanted to during the day, since we were working nights, and the only tickets I ever got were for curling. <laughs> I just couldn't get excited about going to watch, so I, I, did, I never did, but the uh, I can tell you that the entire time I was there, I was hearing all these stories about, yeah, we got to see this uh, this rock group, or this celebrity, or this, uh, you know, this government official, and working nights up on top of the mountain, never got to see it. And then the very last night during the closing ceremonies, they uh, they had us work in the, uh, the VIP vehicle gate. So you saw the vehicles drive in, don't know who was in them. And, you know, working with Secret Service, they had us, you know, the earpieces that you see on TV and everything. And we were waiting on the, uh, uh, the Secret Service command center to call all clear, and all the athletes had to walk back after the national, after the closing ceremonies. And you could hear everything going on from afar inside the, inside the stadium, but you couldn't see it. And got to be at the very end, and I was kicking myself because I hadn't got to see anybody or really, you know, uh, see anything event-wise. And lo and behold, uh, I don't know if you remember the athlete, he was a speed skater, Derek Potter. He came walking down, and I guess the uh, the gates going to Olympic Village had been closed, and so he was kind of stuck. And he came down and said, hey, can somebody uh, get me a vehicle to go back there? Sure. So we're sitting there talking to him, and he was nice enough. He signed those, uh, those yellow uh, uh, coats that we had. Mm-hmm. that uh, identified as a law enforcement and a uh, nice guy. And, and as he's waiting, one of the Tahoes, the Olympic Tahoes, was coming down uh, to leave the venue. So I flagged it down, and I was going to ask if he could jump in. And so the driver rolled the window down, and I went to ask her, and I looked over in the passenger seat. Michelle Kwan was there. 
I forgot what I was going to ask. All I could did, <laughs> can I have your autograph? So she was nice. I don't know if you remember, that was when she had tripped and fallen, so she got the bronze medal instead of the gold. Everybody thought she was going to wear win the gold medal. Again, really nice. She got out and signed all of our jackets. And so the last night, the last moment, finally got to see somebody famous and got their autograph. But I forget, we, we were there for the better part of a month, I mm-hmm. think, and never got to see anything up until that point. Worth it in my book. Yeah. Well, on the, on the last night, there were uh, there were actually two Border Patrol agents that were selected to work inside Rice Stadium. This was one of them. And uh, I, was a, I was a spotter for, for um, on the ground, so if the guys that were up on the perimeter of the of the stadium watching down to look for threats within the, the crowd. If they saw something suspicious, they would radio, and so we would make our way over and, and uh, check out whatever the, the perceived threat might be and, you know, make sure everything was good to go. Um, so I actually got to wander around inside Rice-Eccles Stadium for the entirety of the, uh, of the closing ceremonies. And, um, of course, Definitely. I don't know if you – yeah, I don't know if you recall <laughs> that the, the, there was a, a, a surprise uh, rock band that uh, – that got to play, and as yes. I was wandering around on the floor there, and they introduced who else but Kiss. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, well, a, as, a, as, as a Kiss fan from way back, I, I you know, inside, I looked like this. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> but on the outside, I'm totally professional. Who would have thought? And that's all because you joined the Border Patrol from yes, Connecticut. Sir. Yes, sir. How did you hear about the Border Patrol from there? You know... I heard of the Border Patrol years and years ago when I was in the Army. And uh, one of the guys I served with, who his father was a Border Patrol agent. And, you know, we got to talking one day, and he said, yeah, my, my father's a Border Patrol agent. I said, what's a Border Patrol agent? Mm-hmm. He said, oh, it's, they're like cops, but they're on the border, and they go after drug smugglers and illegal aliens out on the desert. And he really didn't know a whole lot about it, but that's how he described it. I'm like, oh, cool. And I never thought about it until many years later. Um, and I had... Uh, I had been out of the Army for 10 years and, and uh, started going to college to studying criminal justice. And um, there one day, my, uh, one of my instructors was, was briefing on the different federal agencies, and, and uh, he's going over, well, this is the ATF, and this is what they do, and this is INS, and this is what they do, and part of INS is the Border Patrol, and this is what they do. And he stopped what he was saying, and he turned to me, and he said, we should talk about that. I think that would be something for you to look into given your military experience. You'd probably really enjoy it. And I was like, huh, well, cool. And so we got together and talked. He was a retired ATF agent. And uh, so he briefed me up on, on what he knew uh, about the Border Patrol. I said, that sounds like a great opportunity. And uh, next thing I know, I was on the phone dialing in, and it was a, a press button. Like uh, you had to go through this whole rigmarole pre-internet days, right? Yep. And, you know, they'd ask questions, and you'd have to answer by, by pressing a particular number. And uh, put in, and eight months later, I got my FedEx. And you never looked back? Never. So it, it, was there a point whenever you, uh, I mean, obviously going from Connecticut to South Texas, that's a big change. Was there a moment when you looked around and said, okay, I'm home. This is, this is my career. This is what I'm going to do for the, for the, for the rest of my professional life. You know, I don't, I don't know if I actually had one single moment um, but it didn't take me long in the, in the operational environment to find out that I really liked the Border Patrol and I didn't want to have any other kind of law enforcement work. I really loved being out in the field. Um, given, uh, given my background, I like to hunt, I like to fish, I like outdoors, sports and activities, and uh, the Border Patrol let me do all of that and then some. Um, I was not stuck into any one uh, kind of patrol function. I could be on the ground on foot. There again, horse patrol boats, ATVs, all these different opportunities um, for someone to look and say, I have my choice of so many different things, so many opportunities. The only limit, there again, time, you know. So I, I say it every time. I'll say it again. If you get bored in the U.S. Border Patrol, you're simply not trying. There's oh. so much out there to do. And you talk about being an outdoors guy and how you know, that's the, what the Border Patrol affords you. Well, let's talk about your time up at headquarters. Sure. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Not too much outdoor time. Not too many windows <laughs> in the Reagan building, is it? No. So you spent some time. You did two tours up there. First one, you were actually in charge of, oversaw the fleet for the entire U.S. Border Patrol. How many vehicles back then did the Border Patrol have? So back then we had somewhere between 16,000 and 17,000. Um, and it was a time of growth, phenomenal growth for the U.S. Border Patrol. So um, while I was there, we did uh, grow the fleet significantly by thousands of vehicles. And I, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. that. That's what does it take? The life cycle of the vehicles and making sure all the preventative maintenance is met, 
buying tires, the, the fuel costs. Most people don't think about this for any law enforcement agency because that's that's what law enforcement does. They're out on patrol. They have those uh, they have patrol units. They have marked units, unmarked units. We're we're no different. We're we're a lot larger than most uh, law enforcement organizations, and so so is the fleet. But that type of position enables the law enforcement organization to do its job. What a monumental responsibility! Did you ever feel the weight of that when you were there? You know. It never really felt like a heavy lift to me, and I'll tell you why. Um, because although we hear about Border Patrol agents all the time, we have support staff, non-agent support staff, that are just as proud and just as anxious to accomplish our mission as those of us in uniform. And those folks are really um, deserving of the credit in those things like the fleet management, facility management, all the things that happen behind the scenes to make us be able to, to do our job. And um, so for me, as, as the fleet manager, I relied heavily on those uh, sector-level fleet managers to educate me on, on their jobs. And then really I was the spokesperson and facilitator to help them get what they needed to support their sectors. And then working with the, the sector command staffs to make sure that the operational needs were being met. Um, and then challenging industry to help us meet. There again, we, were, um, we have one of the largest fleets uh, law enforcement fleets in the nation, and at the time, growing f- with phenomenal speed. And so we were getting a lot of attention by the vehicle manufacturers and the manufacturers of, uh, of all the different equipment, the partitions and radios and mounts and gun mounts and gun racks, light bars, etc. all these different things that go into a uh, vehicle. And then for our, our vehicle outfit, which is done by uh, uh, Unicor, which is a uh, part of Department of Justice where they, they upfit our vehicles in a, inside the prison, have prisoners that they compete to have uh, those opportunities to have those jobs that, uh, to do those kinds of work on our, on our vehicles. And you're so, talking about uh, not just, so let's just say you get a, uh, an SUV and, and uh, it doesn't come ready to go. You have to have somebody that puts the green stripe, that puts the, the Department of Homeland Security logo on it, that puts the cage in the back that, uh, that separates the driving compartment from the, the back passenger compartment. They have to put the light bars on there. They have to put the radios in there. All of these things have to be done before it actually hits the hits the field, ready for use by one of our agents. That's a lengthy process in and of itself. And so you're talking. We partner with the Department of Justice, and we make use of the the prison systems uh, work programs to actually get that done. Absolutely, yeah. And it's a it's a it's a win win. Um, gives uh, gives some folks that that might not have had the opportunity to learn a skill. Um, you know, so when they get out of prison, they actually have a skill set that they can go and, and, and get a job and be proactive members of, of society rather than just being back to, you know, what they did before. And, you know, it gives us um, the vehicles that we need. You know, so we're supporting them and they're supporting us. And, and there again, something that you probably never dreamed that you would be doing whenever you signed up to be a, a Border Patrol agent. No, no, it's crazy, crazy where your career might take you. Well, so your, your second tour uh, back up at the Reagan building was with the Strategic Planning and Analysis Directorate. And now, for most people that don't know, the headquarters element for the United States Border Patrol operates out of the Reagan building in Washington, D.C. on Pennsylvania Avenue, just a stone's throw away from, from the White House and, and the mall and everything. And it's it has a operations directorate. It has a mission readiness directorate. There's, there's different directors up there. This one is a bit different and not many people think about. Talk a little bit about the mission and the purpose of SPAD, that division that you were part of, directorate you were part of. Sure. Well, they have a, a few different mission sets, but if I was to put it in a, in a nutshell, they're looking at what do we need um, and how do, what do we need to get the job done and how are we going to get there? How are we going to resource? Um, what, what are uh, the different uh, things that are happening in the field? How is that impacting our ability to get the mission done? And what do we need to do to address that? And so you might have, say, um, statistics that are telling you certain type of uh, um, rise in illegal immigration in a particular area. You might decide what kind of assets can I apply there? And a strategic planning and analysis might look at the different possibilities of addressing that threat. Um, it's just enormous um, what, the, what they do. There again, the, the unsung heroes. So it's safe to say that it looks more long-term operations in the moment at the tactical level is dealing with the right here and now. Right. Uh, the SPAD directorate, you know, 
strategic planning analysis is taking a look at you know further down the road so how can we be uh, proactive instead of reactive and, and get ahead of the adversary and make sure we're doing the best we can on the uh, on the border security side by by seeing if we can figure out what they're going to do before they do it and and actually having the right assets and the right force multipliers placed there to stop them in the first place. Right. And if, if uh, again, trying to put it in a nutshell, very complex, if you say, when you look at what is the difference between, uh, to your point, the, the tactical daily, when you look at strategic planning versus tactical planning, that strategic planning is long-term planning. What do we need five years from now, 10 years from now, and trying to project what we need and prepare ourselves in advance while on that tactical planning, to your point, is that is that day-to-day, hence the, the operational division, which is, it's changing. That's a changing environment every day. Those guys are jumping through hoops every day while, Boy, the, stri- yeah. while the strategic planning folks are looking at what's going on day-to-day and trying to guess or project how that's going to impact us five years down the road, 10 years down the road, and develop written plans and strategies to address the threats in the operational environment. So... Was it a learning experience for you going up there to headquarters and kind of seeing that side of things, that, that perspective? Yes, yes. The, uh, the, the strategic planning side, um, getting involved in long-term planning. I had the opportunity as, as the fleet manager because I had to develop five-year spend plans, right? But that was just one program. When you look at, at SPAD with all, when you're talking about an organization's strategy versus one program's um, five-year it's plan, is, is immense. There's so many different working parts and, and, and pieces to that. And then working with sectors all over the nation, each with individual and unique operational environments and trying to, to project, uh, it, it's a monumental task. And uh, there again, some of the folks that work in that directorate and say they, they have 100 pound heads. Their brains must be so big to, <laughs> to process some of the information um, that those guys do. It's, it's just incredible work. Uh, that those guys do up there. And for us, it's kind of a, uh, well, it's a necessary tour to do because of that perspective that it affords you. you know, it, if you're going to move up in rank and if you're going to take on more of a leadership role in the organization, in any organization, I would say, it, you have to kind of see what the headquarters element is all about. You have to get that perspective. And I think when for those of us that have done it and we go back to the field, it gives us a lot more to work with, a unique perspective so that we know when we're dealing with our counter, counterparts that are now up there in headquarters, we know what they're going through and hopefully they know what we're going through and it kind of makes that relationship all the better. So for that reason, it's it's one of those that, that, that most of us see as a necessary uh, tour for a person to do if they want to keep moving up in this organization. Absolutely. And I think when you, when you look at that big picture, once again, not just working with the other agencies, but amongst our different sectors, where if you're if your experience is specific to one sector, you might only learn what that specific sector needs in order to answer the threat. Um, when you go to headquarters, you're going to see a variety of sectors with a variety of different needs and be able to get that perspective and, and then having to prioritize that. Um, how, do you, how do you take, okay, well, this sector has this threat and this sector has this threat. Which one do you address when you have um, boundless need for resources but your supply is limited. And so you have to apply those, there again, that strategic planning. You have to apply that, um, those available resources to best meet the threat, the greatest threat, but always ready to turn on a dime because our threat might die down in one area and immediately crop up somewhere else. So, so we've got to be able to turn on a dime and, and, and answer that threat wherever it appears. And that's a never-ending process, a never-ending evaluation or assessment that's constantly changing because our environment is constantly changing, our threat, our enemy is constantly changing because they're always looking for a way to, to outdo us once we adapt to something that they've, they've been trying. So right. they keep us on our toes, and hopefully we're doing the same to them. Absolutely. So of all of this, all these uh, positions that you've held, What's your favorite? Favorite position I've ever held? Mm-hmm. First line supervisor. Really? Yeah. Why? The leadership aspect, um, being able to be on the ground. You're still getting out in the field and doing the job that, that we joined this agency to do, which is get out there and do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you're getting involved in the, in the planning, the tactical planning of things there at the station level. Um, and you're being able to, to lead and groom uh, the next generation of Border Patrol agents firsthand. You're getting to see the folks, those, those new uh, trainees coming out of the academy 
and they're all fresh and they, they've got all this knowledge and then to help them with that practical um, application of that knowledge on the ground as a first line supervisor, to me that was, that was the best experience um, uh, and that still allowed me to, to get out of the office on a regular basis, do the job, but at the same time have the leadership role and responsibility that, that comes with supervising. Interesting that you say that because that's, that is, if not the most critical in, in many of our judgments, is one of the most critical leadership roles that a person can have. Is you have to have that first-line supervisory time because that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where you're learning how to be a leader. That's where you are in direct contact with the, the men and women that go out there and do the job each and every day. If you don't get that experience, you're missing something. And interesting that you – I've never had anybody say that that was their favorite. Definitely several times people tell you they learn the most in that role, but uh, but interesting. That's uh, that's the first time anybody's ever said that was their, their favorite job. So to the men and women that uh, that, are, that might be listening right now that are that are suiting up every day and going out there and, and right now dealing with a, uh, a very difficult uh, border surge that uh, we so often see throughout our history of this organization, any words of wisdom, words of advice you can give them? Always remember that we join this organization when we when we pin on a badge, we become part of something that's larger than ourselves, right? We become part of the U.S. Border Patrol, and it, for many of us, that becomes part of our persona, part of part of who we are. Don't don't forget um, who you are in that process, but at the same time, remember you are part of something that's much larger than yourself, and we need to keep keep both of those things in perspective. Um, when you think about the, 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 some of the things you might see on the news, some of the things that are negative towards uh, the federal government, that are negative towards the Border Patrol and negative towards um, our role in enforcing immigration law, uh, certainly there's some folks that I would call the, the Border Patrol haters. Um, they're, they're few, but they're very outspoken. Don't let those few outspoken folks get under your skin. Remember, we come to work every day, all of us do every day, and um, we all believe in the mission that we have. Um, the, the laws are, are put in place, and our job is to come in and enforce the laws. If the, greater, uh, if the greater cause, if the greater part of the nation wanted the laws changed, then Congress would probably change those laws. So just, just remember, we come to work. We're, we're unbiased in our application of the laws. We do our job. We do the best we can. Um, we do great work, phenomenal work, and... Uh, that's, that's the biggest thing. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget what our job is and why we do it. And don't let the haters get you down. Deputy Chief Maddox, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Chief. It's great to be here. And that's going to do it, ladies and gentlemen, for another episode of What's Important Now. We'll talk again soon. But until then, as always, stay safe out there and honor first. <laughs>